and welcome to the Data Lab podcast. I'm Joanna McKenzie and I'm Head of Data Science at the Data Lab. So working in data science, I spend a lot of time talking to people about brilliant things that can be done with data, ways of processing it, analysing it, applying modelling, and finally coming up with something valuable. There's a lot you can do with even a relatively simple data set. Ultimately, many data science techniques are at the most powerful when you're dealing with data with some volume or some complexity behind it. For that reason, sometimes the really exciting things start to happen when you take data or information from more than one place and start to join the dots between apparently disparate situations. However, we do live in a world where data doesn't move particularly easily. And I'm not talking here about personal data where respect for people's privacy and agency over their own information requires us to move only with care. Even where the risk from the movement of data is generally low, data still tends to stay where it is. Issues of commercial concerns, practical understanding of technology to move data, a lack of centralised open data infrastructure, and the need to curate and clean data sets for a general context. These can all be barriers to accessing data that exists in the world. This can be a problem in many contexts, but perhaps never more so than when we're dealing with a problem like climate change, which has myriad impacts across every aspect of our lives. So today's guest on the podcast is Gia Mikic from an organisation called Icebreaker One, which has a mission to make data work harder to deliver net zero. Gia is working particularly on the Open Energy Programme to enable discovery of and access to energy data and was a panellist at our recent Our Our Planet Data Tech event. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me and thanks for inviting me to join the panel in October. I'm really looking forward to another excellent conversation. It was a good panel. I really enjoyed going back and talking a little bit about um, all the bits that I remember from my energy industry time. So I really enjoyed that one. Excellent, I did too. <laughs> so let's start then with an introduction. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and um, get our listeners a little bit of an idea of where your background is and where you came from? Sure. Um, so as you mentioned in your introduction, my name is Gaia Mikic and I'm the co-founder and the program manager of Icebreaker One. Um, and Open Energy is our flagship program. So in that, we're working um, with industry to develop a service that makes it easy to search, access and securely share energy data. And um, we've been fortunate enough that recently Ofgem and the UK government have um, come out with a joint statement saying that they are supportive of Open Energy and that it will help to bring help to bring together data held by thousands of organizations and institutions to enable an open marketplace and a net zero future. And so at Icebreaker One, we really believe that by developing open standards and through collaboration, um, open energy can unlock sector-wide efficiency and innovation. My background is actually in languages though. Um, so I hold um I hold a Spanish and Russian degree completely a little bit sidestepping um, and I also hold a, a master's in disasters adaptation and development so my angle is actually very much from how we view communicate and act upon risk in the climate crisis to preserve lives and livelihoods that's brilliant languages Sam, did you say Spanish and Russian yep that's correct <laughs> brilliant that's a fantastic combination um, so disasters and urban resilience, that's an interesting background. So can you tell me how that brought you to where you are now? How did you end up starting from masters in disasters and resilience and ending up here at Icebreaker One? Um, yeah, of course. So the short answer is actually that I decided that I wanted to address the systemic issue. So basically like the root causes of what cause, um, of how this comes about in the first place. And that's why Icebreaker One's vision is so important to me because it revolves around 
empowering decision makers to mandate, measure and act upon the data flows that enable net zero. I'd say that the long version <laughs> involves admitting that I've been a climate nerd for a really long time. In my year seven geography presentation was on CFCs and holes in the ozone layer. And um, there's a whole winding path that I took, but ultimately it comes down to that systemic change piece. Um, I want to help get us to net zero and we can't do that without sorting out the data sharing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, following on from that a little bit, when we, th we talk, think about disasters, we're thinking usually about quite abrupt things. We're thinking hurricanes, tornadoes, volcanoes, flooding even. Um, and we're seeing quite a lot of these and we are seeing them to being linked to climate change. But we don't tend to think of climate change as a disaster in the same way. Is that wrong, that thinking, do you think? Absolutely. But also as humans, we have really short term event horizons. So there's um there's a really, really important and um kind of famous phrase in um particularly within disaster scholarship, which is there's no such thing as a natural disaster. And essentially all of these um all of these situations are caused by humans um, because they're caused by cl the climate crisis. They are also caused by our systems that put vulnerable people to um in harm's way um in front of what are known as natural hazards so things like earthquakes and so on but also um there are two types of disasters so there's rapid onset disasters which are the things that you talked about so really really like um fast moving you know sudden flooding um such as flash flooding or like landslides and things like that and then there's the slow onset ones that are kind of drought or um you know uh, the fact that the biomes are shifting thanks to the climate crisis, like all of these are slow onset disasters and they're much harder to um, to really, really recognise because they kind of happen gradually until you're in serious trouble. And that's what we're seeing now. Boiling a frog. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think the work that you're doing sort of pairing up the the conception of disasters on a short time scale with the sort of longer term disasters and, and bringing that into our response is quite an important one and it's not something that I've not seen addressed as much so yeah good job thanks <laughs> all right so let's move on and talk a little bit about icebreaker one how did it come about how did you end up getting involved Oh, uh, well, uh, straight out of my master's, I met Gavin. Gavin Starks is the CEO of Icebreaker One. He had just, um, he has a really interesting background and he just finished co-chairing the development of the open banking standard. Um, he also, I'm not going to talk about his background because he can do it way better than I can, but he's been working in climate for quite a long time and has some energy experience as well. Um, and he wanted to look into um, applying the principles of open banking to um, helping to solve the climate crisis. So I actually helped do the background research on all of this. Um, and so for 18 months, what we did was we spoke to over 180 people from across um, different sectors, but primarily in insurance, actually, um, and talking about the levers that insurance might hold um, and the data that it might need to be able to kind of move forward um, in helping us address and mitigate the climate crisis. So um, that's kind of where it started. And we kind of got to the mission statement of, um, making data work harder to deliver net zero by sorting out the data flows. And that's kind of the really important part that we work on those, sorting out those data flows, as you've mentioned already. Um, for us, that means also taking a sector-led approach and working directly with industry to figure out how to remove that friction from data sharing. Um, I'd say 
with open data that's often just making it easier to find there are other things alongside that but that's kind of but with shared or commercially sensitive data which is a lot of where we work it's working out what the rules need to be so the licenses the liability and the processes that will make it easy to securely share that data that we need to make um the decisions that will help us get to net zero yeah, that's really interesting. I like the fact that you started with insurance because we we started talking about um, disasters and obviously insurance has a massive role in these disasters and it, it's a massive cost for them. So it's one of the spaces where mitigating that feels like it would be a natural fit. Is that what you found in practice? We did. And we also found that um, there is still insurance has a long way to go. Um, so it's a really, really complicated ecosystem. And actually, so our first program that we launched was the Standard for Environment Risk and Insurance, CERI. Um, and in that, we worked on kind of what innovative products insurance could put forward to help mitigate those problems because we really felt that it had a lot uh, had a big role to play however um the way the current regulation system is set up and the way in which the ecosystem currently functions some changes needed and that may require some regulatory intervention so where we've got to on that is um we've taken some really really cool stuff forward with partners and we've also published a set of recommendations on what should be happening next and um, i would say that yeah it's going to need a it's going to need a little bit more intervention and work um, to get to the point where insurance alone can pull on the levers that it actually has within its um, reach. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right, so how does your day-to-day look in the Icebreaker 1? What is it that you're currently working on, currently developing? So I'm the program manager, which basically means that I'm responsible for the delivery of our project. So I'll do everything from working with the team to put together the bids that we're going for and then designing the programs we're going to be delivering with the team and then working with them to make that happen, which means that my day to day is actually really varied. So here I am on a podcast with you today. Um, mm-hmm. Later this afternoon, I'll be briefing co-chairs um, for our advisory groups on. Um, so we run these industry advisory groups, so that might um, be my day might be writing those agendas it might be working with the co-chairs on what's going to be in that working with our team on who's presenting at them and then what feedback we're seeking directly from industry or it might be pulling stuff together for funders and reporting on that um really it's so many different things in a day I have to say um it's a lot of speaking to people though a lot of my job is speaking to people and um sometimes reviewing documents but um, I think what makes it really exciting is the fact that we've got a really amazing team and a lot of it is incredibly fun. That sounds good. Um, it's nice to have a bit of variety in your day-to-day job, certainly. You don't want to end up doing the same thing all the time. And that sounds like you've got plenty of that. Oh, so much. I have quite a multi-track mind. So um, I think if I didn't have lots of different things running at the same time, I wouldn't be able to um, kind of sit still. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good I think the other concept I wanted to touch on before we move on is to talk about um, open data so in the tech sector we do talk a lot about open data and we talk about whether data should be open or not but we made a distinction in our data tech session where we talked instead about shared data I think that's an interesting one so how are these concepts different to you and what's the value of thinking about shared data rather than open data here so this is such an important concept, so thank you for raising it. Um, and we've done quite a lot of work on this, including with the ODI, who um, came up with the data spectrum um, as a kind of easy way of defining how data um, data works and the kind of different levels of it. So you've got open data, which is defined as data that can be used by anyone for anything for free. 
um, the next step along that um, kind of um, spectrum is the share, is share data. And so that's data that's shared with a preemptive license that so will have conditions attached. Often it's held by private sector organizations and a lot of its users are private sector. And then closed data, which is data that requires user-specific custom licenses, such as bilateral contracts. So those are the bits that have to be negotiated one-to-one. -one. And so where we're focused on working is this um, shared data space, which is um, we're focused on reducing transactional friction around shared data. And we're doing that by creating common frameworks to enable discoverability and access. A really tangible example is the stuff that we're doing with Open Energy at the moment. So in that, we're actually defining the data access conditions and the licenses so that um, we can remove some of that bilateral contract negotiation that, that currently happens in the energy industry. So you can share a data set for specific uses under specific conditions with specific types of users, and that can help move that um, kind of currently incredibly slow process forwards. I mean, that sounds like a really interesting set of distinctions. So what we've got, we've got um, what I said in the introduction is it can be really valuable to have the capability to join different data sets up from different sources. That can be where you can get some really good insight. Um, obviously, you have access to a certain number of data sets that are from within maybe your organization or from the open data space. What you're essentially enabling is a middle ground spaces where you, with your particular purpose and context, should have access to additional data sets that are maybe not open for everybody to use under all conditions, but it's valuable and it's recognized to be valuable that that data should be shared with you to enable your particular purpose. Is that a reasonable summary? Yes, absolutely. That's a really great summary. Yeah, I'm just trying to put it in tech, tech language a little bit. So, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so apart from energy, are there other spaces in Icebreaker 1 where you've been working to move on this concept of data sharing and build data sets in your in your space in icebreaker one yeah absolutely so at icebreaker one we have a mandate to work on um what we refer to as net zero data and that encompasses engineering data financial data and um and climate data and that's kind of what we need to be linking together to be addressing net zero so in our first year we had a really really good year um, did some really, really cool stuff. So I've already talked about SERI, which looked at product innovation and insurance and how insurance can help us pull those um, levers to get to net zero. We also ran Project um, Cygnus, which looked at net zero economic recovery from COVID-19. In that, we partnered with University College Dublin and the Global Open Finance Centre of Excellence um, in Edinburgh, who are doing some really, really cool things um, off the back of open banking at the moment. I can't explain that part that well, but have a look, look them up, they're great. Um, and um, we also ran some smaller pieces, um, such as looking at cross-border data sharing in Europe and beyond, and um, green economy use cases for Bayes. And members of our team have also been involved in Bayes' smart data initiative. But um, at Icebreaker 1, what we're doing is we're really taking a sector-focused approach. So we're currently in energy, um, but there's five core clusters that we want to be working across. So that's energy, transport, agriculture, built world, and water. So we've got a lot of plans and ambitions and my personal passion is water, but there's some really cool stuff brewing in energy at the moment, in transport at the moment as well. Sounds good. I'm sure there's cool stuff brewing in energy as well. There is, yes. <laughs> but we've talked about that one a bit as well. So watch this space for new, new things coming on transport. Brilliant. I'm looking forward to that because these are all so core to our, our net zero response. That's such important concepts. So what sort of data sets are you seeing? What sorts of what sorts of things are people sharing? 
So from our perspective, um, we're actually not focused on the specific data set, but what we do in Open Energy in particular is we have Energy Search, and that focuses on energy data, which is, and at the moment, it's specifically data that's relevant to our first use case, um, which we developed under the Modernizing Energy Data Access Program, which we won um, through a kind of multi-phase um, process with UKRI and um off German phase. And so that core use case was actually centered around a project manager in a local authority who was trying to make retrofitting decisions to add low carbon technologies at a neighborhood level. And so in that, we looked at um, the kind of whole ecosystem that she turned to to try and make that decision from the consultants that would need to kind of pull the data to get those answers to the providers of that data. Um, we are actually currently looking at adding to developing two more use cases one around EVs, um, so electric vehicles, and one around flexibility. Um, but so um, recent additions, for example, to energy search have been things such as MUKPN's recently published um, data from its portal. We work directly with them to make sure that it's now searchable in um, energy search. And we're looking at um, adding more to that, basically, um, and connecting as many things as we can, really. That sounds really interesting. Now, coming from a background in the energy industry, there was a caution about sharing data. There was a feeling that there was, it wasn't so much that they had identified that there were risks of sharing. It was more that they just had a gut feel that there might be commercial sensitivities in the data and they were very cautious about sharing in there. Does that mirror with your experience and having these conversations with people? Are people cautious? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Obviously, um, there's everyone says there's commercial value to everything, but um, our motto is connect, don't collect. So um, data increases in value the more it's connected and everything is always going to come with a risk. But the whole point of trying to do this with the whole sector and the regulator as an observer is so that we can figure out what those risks are and mitigate them in advance. Also, in addition, that's why there's proper processes in place to outline what liability looks, um, how liability works, what the dispute resolution process um, will be. And from my perspective, I would argue that the bigger risk is doing nothing. Um, this isn't going to go away. We're not going to need to share less data. It's not going to get less complicated. Like we need to get this right. And so ignoring it won't make it disappear. It just means that maybe you're left out of the process or, you know, your use case isn't addressed appropriately. And we really don't want that to happen. So um, I'd say that the, the bigger risk is actually inaction. Yeah, absolutely. I, I did encounter occasionally the attitude that if you close it down and bury it really closely, then there's no longer any risk. But it's not a seed. It doesn't grow if you plant it. If you bury it, then all you have is buried data and nobody can get the value, including you. So opening that up and bringing it out and, and being aware of the risks and mitigating them as you talk about is such an important part of this whole approach. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, I would say that we need to, we really need to get to a space where we've kind of de-risked innovation. So um, innovation is currently regarded as super scary and really risky. And, you know, but that's the exact thing that we need to move us forward. It's like we're not going to get to net zero with business as usual. And so we really, really need to be figuring out how we work with, you know, the compliance teams and the regulator and everybody in that ecosystem to try and get to the point where um, we can move this forward. And we are uh, we are actually being able to work towards making demonstrably net zero decisions because otherwise we're just we're in serious trouble. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. We're in serious trouble already, I think. So on to that 
uh, you've re-mentioned the net zero phrase and we've talked a lot about this. So what I would like to ask you then specifically is how's the connect, what's the connection between the work that you're doing on open data and energy and the different sectors that you've mentioned and bringing us through as a community, as a culture, as a society into a net zero future? What's the connection for you? How do you see that playing out? What do you mean? I, I'm not sure I understand the question. I'm really sorry. No, absolutely. I mean, net zero and data can be quite disparate in our day-to-day lives. When we're working with data, we're not always thinking about carbon, being carbon neutral measurements. So just thinking, okay, so you've got involved because you care about net zero, got involved in this data. So, so how do you see that connection? How do you see that mechanism that helps us get to net, net zero? Oh, okay. Right. Okay. So I think I would start from saying that um, data is an a- data has an absolutely crucial role to play in getting us to net zero. So if we cannot measure an evidence, if the decisions that we are making are going to drive us to net zero, again, we don't know if we're going where we need to go. We're basically flying blind. And that's something that we cannot afford to do when the future of our planet is at stake. I think what you've touched on is that you're right. Um, most people do not think in a systemic manner and most people do not think in their day-to-day lives about what they're doing today and how that connects to the really big and broad picture of complex systems that we really, really need to be addressing um, when we're thinking about net zero. And even, you know, um, I get that because I struggle with that too, because it's such a huge thing. But actually, we need to. We just, we, we, this, is, this is why we really have to start, in my opinion, from a use case driven approach. So we need to take one problem at a time and figure out how we need to solve it, what data is required for that, who has it, how we share it, and how we move that forwards, and who holds the decision making power around that, and how we empower them to know that the decisions that they are making are the things that are going to get us to net zero. And then we need to take that approach and repeat it as many times as possible. We need to make it repeatable. And this is a part of why also um, a lot of what we do is, well, actually all of what we do is openly licensed. We openly license all our outputs, not because, um, A, because that's what we believe in open by default, but B, because actually we need to make this repeatable. We need to make this as copyable as possible. We don't hold the monopoly on this and we want everybody out there in the world to be going out and doing this as much as possible and um, amplifying each other. Does that answer the question or have I gone on a tangent? No, absolutely. That was exactly what I was thinking about. I think it's quite interesting because there's a sort of benchmarking KPI approach to data where you say, okay, where are we now? We're going to take some action and then we're going to measure where we got to and that was going to tell us whether we are going in the right direction. And I think that's a very important use of data. It's also from a data science perspective, quite a simple use of data because it's a direct measurement and then a a second direct measurement and a comparison. It's relatively straightforward. If you talk to people in the data science sector, in the tech sector, perhaps, then we we tend to get quite ambitious about what we can do with data. We're going to model this and we're going to pull that in and then there's going to be graphs and it's going to be great. And we get quite excited about it, which is great. But often we forget the, the sheer value of coming right back down and saying, no, we need to know that one number. <laughs> we need to know yeah. how it changes after we've done this thing. And that can be um, a simplicity that we can overlook yeah. because we're so keen to dive into the complexity. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's, I th- to be honest, I think there's a role for both. I think there's a role for we need to actually just make this simple and digestible, but also we do need to understand, and this is kind of the whole systemic problem thing, that we are dealing with incredibly complex systems and that there is a role for also the really complex modelling. But um, I also 
think that there isn't like there's not going to be the model that rules them all the the complex answer for everything it's um you know it's a series of relatively small pieces that all need to come together for us to be able to get to where we need to go yeah absolutely it's really interesting um all right so touched already on some of the key risks that people perceive in there is there any particular approach that you're taking to mitigate these risks and what's been the most powerful one when it comes to drawing people in and and getting them to actually commit to participating in icebreaker one so for us it's really just been trying to get everybody in the room um so we run um a series of parallel processes basically um, to make sure that we're hearing as many voices and addressing as many concerns as we can. Um, So we run an open engagement programme to just kind of keep everybody who's interested updated on it. We publish um, openly and transparently as we go. Um, In addition to that, we also then run a review track. So this is, I'll talk about the advisory groups in a second, but this is for those people who feel that they cannot participate in the advisory groups or perhaps can't make all of the meetings, um, but uh, but would like to also participate in reviewing the documents, understanding what's going on, keeping up to date with the overall process and the detail of it. So we run a review track that anyone can join um, and kind of comment on all of the consultations and the different documents that the advisory groups are reviewing and things like that. Um, Alongside that, um, we also run open consultations. So those are open to anybody and everybody. We publicize them as much as we can. So this is when we really need and want the broadest of um, opinions. Um, And so we'll publish a series of questions, a series of um, documents. So for example, we've just finished our data access um, uh, conditions one. Um, And so that, that was, really just out there in the Google Sheet for anybody to um, participate in. And then we have our advisory um, groups and our steering group. And these are um, openly recruited and anybody can apply to join them. Um, And we really, really try and get as much representation from the sector in these as possible and they meet monthly so there's um two advisory groups one is the membership and delivery advisory group and then one is the user needs advisory group and so the membership and delivery one looks at kind of the operational aspects of everything of how you join what the um how that should work what the onboarding journey is for example um all of those things and then the user needs one is looking at what's next so um what additional use cases should we be prioritizing what should we where should we be going next and are we on the right um are we on the right track and we use them as checkpoints so the team um would do lo- uh, do work pose it to the advisory groups for questions get feedback on that go away do more stuff and then bring it back for um another checkpoint every month so um are we on the right track have we reached where we want to go with this and so on and then we report to a steering group um which is made up of um Oh, DNOs, um, the regulators and observer on there, Bases on there. It's a really, it's a group of really powerful people. You sort of think, you know, if they can't make this happen, then what are we going to do? <laughs> and they and they're there to really keep us on track. So to make sure that if we're falling off um, down a rabbit hole, heading in the wrong direction, aren't thinking about the bigger picture enough, um, they're there to be like, hey, come back, pay attention. Um, so that sort of what we try and do to make sure that um, we're really, really, really thinking about all of the risks up front and also all of the benefits. Um, Because actually there's a, I'd say that often there's a really, really big focus on the risks. So I don't want to do this. um, It's scary. It's, you know, what will the compliance officers say? How do we deal with this? But um, again, there's a lot of benefits to it as well. Um, So, you know, if we think about the way that um, the the things that we're trying to do in open energy, 
to me the benefits are really clear like um it's all going like as i said before this is only going to get more complicated and so the number of data requests in organizations isn't going to drop it's going to increase because that's the world that we live in now so what we're going to be seeing is um things getting much more complicated. So getting this right now will reduce friction, it will save time and it will save money realistically. Um, and so the both the economic prize and opportunity are huge. And also um, obviously the need to not set our entire world on fire is actually also really, really just an impending hanging there. And we really, this is, this is the way forward that we need to be taking. Yeah, let's try not to do that. We don't want any more wildfires. That's pretty bad. <laughs> Yeah, so that was really interesting. I was interested when you say that your steering group in involves people from the sector, but also people like Bayes. So there's presumably there's a data and tech effort in there. There's people involved from the data side of things. Is that correct then? Um, so do you mean on the steering group as in the people from Bayes or just on the steering group in general? Just, I'm thinking generally for your stakeholders. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a lot to be learned from other sectors, but also I think the um, really interesting. So we've got, you know, on the steering group, we've also got representatives from um, people like the Open Banking Implementation Entity, Tech UK. Um, what we're trying to do is learn what works from other sectors, um, because, again, this is not an isolated issue. And this is also not a problem that has never been solved anywhere else. Um, We've seen it solved in other sectors, and it's something that we're working towards um, and need to be working towards across other uh, across lots of sectors. So we need to be taking what worked from other sectors, learning from it, and pulling it into where we're currently working. Yeah, I think that's a, a thing that we can tend to get a little bit siloed. We can tend to get caught in our own context. And I'm quite pleased with that, that you're bringing in people from lots of different places and making them part and parcel of your effort and your learning. I think that's a really good example that we need to get better at. So. I agree. And I mean, it's hard, right? It's really hard when you have your when you have your kind of area that you work in. And that's the thing that you think about. It's really difficult to take a step outside of it. But I think a lot of what we talk about in Icebreaker One is that it's not about the technology, like the technology is there. What it is, is about is the culture change. So it's about figuring out how we make it seem less scary, but also how we work out all of those things that, you know, scare people. Like, how do we actually make this so that it's um, it's simple? How do we work out the contracts? What about the licenses? How do we just make that business as usual? And that's a culture change, not a technology thing. I think culture change is where those connections with people are very, very important because I think if you want to make change stick, one of the biggest things you need to do is give people time to adjust and multiple engagements, keep them involved in the process, let them see the change happening for themselves seems to be a really powerful tool that we can occasionally when we're trying to do something that's a, a change for people, we can kind of say, well, here's your half an hour's training course on it, go away and figure it out. <laughs> But that doesn't really work for people because it, what you really need for people to, to, to accept change and make change happen is you need them fully engaged and on side and understanding the process. So it sounds like what that's what you're doing. That's essentially what you're doing, keeping people engaged, people keeping people um, involved in the process and incrementally keeping them moving in the right direction. Absolutely. I think one of the things that's always overlooked is actually how important that engagement is, but also how hard it is. Um, so we spend a lot of time on this. We spend, we have 
you know, we have people who who are there to make sure that this is happening. And um, it's it's really interesting because lots of people want to see, you know, what's the tech? Can you show me? Can you show me the thing working? And actually, that's that's kind of the easy part. What what the hard part is making sure that everyone is heard and that they're in the room and they feel like they own this process and that they are bec- owning that process and becoming part of what um what needs to happen because that's how we're going to actually get it adopted. Yeah, that's really important. Um, it's a bit of an interest of mine is looking at change and how people have adapted to change. I think it's easy to underestimate how much of a barrier it can be, um, even when there's benefits there. And I can remember being told if I wanted to change something in my last job, then what I needed to do was make a business case. And it's only now with a certain amount of hindsight that I understand that making the business case wasn't enough. I also needed to overcome people's inherent risk aversion and their their aversion to change, especially when they personally wouldn't necessarily be the beneficiaries of the change. It was a difficult one. So it's an interesting space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, with my disasters background, um, a lot of what we look at is obviously how people process um, and kind of rationalise risk. So um, things like why why people still live in inherently risky situations, it can seem really strange as an outsider because you're like, well, obviously, just don't do that. And that's never the answer. <laughs> just, you know, spoiler alert, the answer is never just don't do that. It's about understanding um, what people's motivations are and what reasons for change are and helping people along that journey. And that's very much what we need to be doing across all sectors. Well, that's really interesting because we come back to that idea of boiling the frog as well, because it can start off. It's not really that risky. You know, it's you've moved into a flood zone, but there hasn't been a flood for a while and it's fine. And then maybe there is a flood, but you invested so much in cleaning up afterwards and it's quite an unusual event. So maybe it's fine. And people get acclimatized to a level of risk. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's all sorts of examples from that worldwide. um, And it's it's interesting and it's also really important that we do think about that and understand that if we're going to get anywhere near um moving towards net zero and that i think that applies in a business sense and also in a kind of like personal or like you know the rest of the world sense rather than just you know what you do in your day job but as you as you look around on a on a daily basis like that that understanding that is really important to also understanding on how to engage with people who are perhaps not experiencing or understanding the urgency of the climate crisis as well, um, because it's easier to not. Yeah, absolutely. You could say that that's something that we as a society are all experiencing about the climate crisis, because certainly I've been looking at the world and thinking, okay, California's been on fire most of the last two summers. Um, we had most of, some of the rainforest was on fire that year before last. Australia was on fire. Some of Africa was on fire for a bit, you know, and that was unusual. That, I mean, we looked at that and we watched that happen and we thought, thought this is a bit unprecedented, but we've almost adapted to it. We've almost gotten used to the idea that, okay, now California's just a place that goes on fire now sometimes, but it shouldn't be. That's, that's wrong. That's, that's, that's a that's a red flag but there's an, a, a tendency for us to look at it and go well maybe it wasn't so bad and I can't figure that head mindset out you can see it happening you can see people and leaders and people making decisions just no category five hurricanes are normal now that's fine 
I think as humans, that's just it's part. It's an innate part of human nature to try and to try and do that. To do that, especially to things we don't understand. Um, I also think that it's a time horizons problem. So again, everyone talks about 2030, 2050, net zero by this point, net zero by that point. I mean, again, it's not tomorrow, is it? Um, and the thing that we always overlook is that actually we need to be making changes now. It's not like we oh we're going to do that in ten years. It's like or whatever, how many years we have left now, eight years. Um, it's like, no, we need to, those changes, those um, those shifts in the way our economies and our societies work need to be happening now. And we need to be thinking about that now because this is where also the question of the just transition comes in quite a lot. Um, if we don't start thinking about this appropriately now, if we don't start thinking about how we're going to mitigate the fundamental shifts that need to occur and how we're going to help people through that, in a way that doesn't leave people behind, it's going to be it's going to be a sudden transition that's forced by events happening in our own backyards where we're no longer watching it on the TV, but it's happening, you know, in in your garden, in your house. Um, and the result is going to not it, it's not going to be smooth, shall we say? No. no. And I can remember talking to thinking it through maybe ten years ago when I was still working in the wind energy industry and I was thinking about what would it look like if the government in the UK specifically so I was thinking in the UK context really took climate change seriously in the 1990s years round about the turn of the millennium there and I was thinking okay so we would see massive um, uptake in insulation purposes we'd be insulating domestic properties we'd be insulating um, business properties we'd be seeing um, regulations on new build properties, on new build houses that would be much, much tighter than we saw in practice. We'd be seeing massive investment in transportation options like electric trains, electrification of train lines. We'd be looking at much better public transport option. We would want people out of cars and that we, we were saying, right, no high speed train lines. Let's stop this sort of, remember the cheap flights boom of the, um, of the early 2000s. Um, all of these things would not have been as available if they had really looked and said, do you know what, if we start reducing the carbon we use now, that will pay dividends in the decades to come. And it would have, absolutely. Even those simple things that we could have done 20 years ago, they would have made a big, big difference to the position that we're in now. It left me with this lingering feeling that you can tell what matters to people not by what they say but by what they actually do what actions do they put in place and the actions although the rhetoric was more or less there the actions weren't there for me uh, 10 10 15 years back and they could have been we could have started and gotten a lot further along the journey 20 years back oh absolutely i completely agree i mean even now right um, it's still often cheaper to fly than it is to take the train. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about like getting to COP. I didn't even look at flight prices because I was like, I'm taking the train. I don't care that I have to. So I, I went from Bristol to um, Glasgow. It took me seven hours there and back. Um, so each journey was seven hours, two to three changes. Ooh, it was an expensive train ticket. And still I was like, well, obviously I'm not going to contribute to the carbon footprint of this climate conference where lots of people flew. Um, and it just tells me that the incentives are all wrong. You know, it's cheaper for me to hop on a short domestic flight than it is to take a train. That that shouldn't be the case. And I think that's, again, this is 
coming back to you know like what we're trying to do at icebreaker one and trying to actually like talk about that trying to talk about um and generate that action that we're trying to see it is really about making it so that you can mandate and measure that because right now you know i can go out and calculate some bits um, because you know there are different calculators out there gavin's previous company amy um made it so that you could calculate the carbon footprint of just about anything on um on the planet but that's not something that's inbuilt into our decision making you know when i'm decide when when joe blogs on the street is deciding about whether they're going to take a train or drive to somewhere it's about how much does it cost because that's what we have that's what most people have to base their decisions on it's not about like which one has a lower carbon footprint and that we need to get those incentives right because currently they are misaligned and what we're seeing is a lot of talk as you said um and and not very much action and not very much planning mm -hmm. so we're kind of trying to i guess make it so that those plans are evident and so that it's really really clear what we need to do and so that we can measure it um because i don't see another way personally <laughs> But it's not it's not just even about costs as well from my perspective when i'm going somewhere quite often i'm taking my kids with me and i don't really want to do a rain a railway journey with two kids which also involves multiple changes in random places in the middle of a train journey where you just have to hit the right station multiple times and it's not it's not logistically easy it's not simple whereas a train a flight can very often be the simple solution a drive can very often be the simple solution pile everybody in keep them entertained for a bit drive to where you're getting to go but we've made a quite complex public transport system and it's it's even when the cost isn't factored in and as is pretty much inevitably it will be factored in but even without that the level of complexity and logistics involved can be challenging anyway it's difficult so absolutely i totally agree <laughs> it's, it is it's challenging uh, but i think what would be nice at this stage we're running kind of low on time now, so I'm going to start winding up to a close. We've just talked about what we've been doing wrong and reasons perhaps to be despondent about it. But what I would like to do is turn that conversation around a bit and think instead, what gives you hope? What what is it when you're when you're feeling down or despondent about whether we're going to get through this? What do you look at? What situations do you look at? What what helps you understand that that, that this can work, that we can keep going and that the fight's worth doing? Oh God, so many things actually. Um, and I agree. I had a conversation yesterday with somebody about, you know, how do you not carry this with you all the time? Um, so particularly, you know, when you study disasters and then when you go and work on um, trying to, you know, create change to help us solve the climate crisis, it can be really difficult to not carry that burden with you all the time. Um, and being able to look at the good things um, is really important. I think there's been some really, really amazing moves um, worldwide that we've seen recently, both between certain governments legislating against, um, against let's say, fossil fuel companies, um, certain, um, certain commitments made by other organizations, such as, you know, Arab have made some amazing commitments as today are not taking on any new fossil fuel um, projects at all, which is a pretty big commitment to be making as a company that works on engineering. Um, but also, um, if I look at even where Open Energy is and where Icebreaker One has gone, we are so much further along than we thought we'd be in the time. We have moved at lightning speed and that is really really thanks to the team that's been working on it the people that we've been working with at face enough gem um and um the people in the energy sector who have been receptive to this and who want to see a solution and i think the fact that we are solutions focused and we're talking about what happens next is the thing that brings me hope 
also on a personal level often it's just a bit of satire um glasgow had some great stuff um there is an amazing um artist called darren cullen who um took a particular bus to cop and uh, parked it outside the glasgow school of art and that i really enjoyed sometimes you just need a little bit of humor in the middle of it all um to keep you going really i mean it's a whole collection of things <laughs> Making me think of that very famous cartoon where the scientists are all gathered round very seriously and somebody puts a hand up and says, but what if it's all a big hoax and we create a better world for nothing? <laughs> yeah, Terrible. I mean, it's, um, you know, and then you're like, and so what? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> better world, I'll take that as an option, especially if it was by accident. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, you know. <laughs> Brilliant. I think I think in summary there's a lot that brings me hope and I think it's worth um, I think it's worth focusing on the good and the fact that there is quite a lot of action happening um, and we really and we need that we need to we need to focus on those positive moments and we need to see that actually we've come quite far we need to keep pushing um, but we should be heartened by how far we've managed to come I think that's a really good point so thank you very much Gia for joining us on today's podcast it's been a pleasure having you and getting a chance to learn more about your work. Having worked in the energy industry, so I have some inkling of some of the barriers there to sharing data, legacy IT systems, a variety of approaches across different technologies, commercial concerns, and they all have the potential to make data sharing more challenging. However, a task being difficult doesn't stop it being worthwhile. And I'm excited by the potential of Icebreaker 1 and the progress you've been able to make in the early stages of your journey. Um, to start opening this door and making it more um, making it more connected um, to the industry that already exists and the efforts that are already um, going on. So thank you very much to our listeners for coming with us on this journey. And if you've made it this far, thank you very much for listening in. And I hope you'll join us again for another Data Lab podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me.